you're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with author, screenwriter, and director Edgar Carrette. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. For me, there is something about uh, art that it's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And you know, some people, let's say it doesn't matter who they speak to, they will speak in the same way. They would speak to a five-year-old or to an intellectual or to somebody who doesn't speak the language very well. They would speak the same way and they don't care because this is what they have to say. But I think that the natural thing in a dialogue is really to look in the eyes of the person you speak to and see when he understands or when she doesn't understand or when she's moved or when he's angry and basically out of that kind of create your own language and I think that the same way that people are excited about it, learning new languages and speaking in different languages because I think each language has different merits you know and different aspects so I basically speak Hebrew and English many things in the world it's easier for me to understand through English and not through Hebrew so this idea this kind of learning this new language it kind of allows me some kind of versatility and understanding the world better so I think that having a dialogue with specific different kind of audiences does the same you know it's like I think when I started publishing and my books started becoming successful the first thing I did was I wrote a children book because I thought in life I like speaking to adults but I also like speaking to children because my mom grew up in a period where they were excited about Nazi ideology and my mom knew that this wasn't a good thing so this idea of kind of making up your own story instead of taking other people's stories is something that was very important you know when I was a child my mother didn't allow children book in our home because she insisted on making the stories for us and for her basically it was kind of like the idea of reading us a classic from a book was like ordering a pizza instead of cooking dinner it meant that she didn't care about us and she felt because her parents told her bedtime stories in the ghetto where they had no access to books. And for her, she saw how those people who were broken and angry and hurting would still find in their imagination a brand new story that they made for somebody that they loved. So for her, it was this kind of generosity and something that could not be compared to buying Alice in Wonderland and reading it to somebody. You had to give more than that. I want to say that there is something I think about both my parents, but I think especially my mother, it's as if the horrible circumstances that they lived through being Jews in the Holocaust, my mother losing her entire family. It was horrible and traumatic, but it was almost like a very extreme human experiment. And it created something. It's like many times when you put somebody in extreme situations and most of the time he will crash or she will crash, but sometimes a superhero will be born. And there is something about my parents that when I came to work on the exhibition of my mother, I realized that there is something about her was so unique that it could not have been achieved in normal time. Because the thing that happened with my mother was that when the war started, she was five years old. When the war ended, she was 11 years old. By the time she was about 10, all the people that she had known before the war had died. Her parents, her brother, her grandfather, her friends. So basically, by the time that the war was over, she had nobody who could collaborate or refute her memories. And her entire childhood was totally based on senses and experience and not about any kind of process. Because if you think about it, that let's say if I ask you, I don't know, Mia, tell me about your childhood. And you would say, I was born in this and this city, in this and this date. And at the time, the prime minister was this guy and we were going through recession. But the way that my mother would tell, it would have no details. It would be very much like a fairy tale. In that sense, 
that she would tell a story not thinking that her personal history is a part of a great history. It's not as if she's like a little pebble in the mosaic of the Second World War, but more as if she's a Hollywood star in a periodical film. You know, if you go and see, I don't know, Brad Pitt or Scarlett Johansson in a movie, and then you say, I don't remember if it's in Roman time or Greek time, or is it Byzantine or Sparta? I don't know, but it's with Brad Pitt and Scarlett Johansson. So with my mother, I think it was a little bit like it's her story and the most horrible things that happen to her are things that can scar her or can improve her, but they're still part of a story. It reminds me a little bit, let's say, the way that we tell ourselves fairy tales. Because when you think about Little Red Riding Hood, then in the end of the story, she doesn't have a post-trauma. And we don't know a lot about the year in which it happened or how many wolves there were in the jungle. The thing is that horrible things happen around her and they formulate her identity and they formulate facts that she will not trust wolves but she will trust hunters you know but all of this makes some kind of a childlike weird sense and I think that there is something about the ways that my mother would tell her history or stories in general that even when she grew up because she got orphaned she would keep telling the stories in this certain way and the funny thing about it is that only when I started working on this exhibition I realized that my style of writing was completely inspired by the ways that my mother told me stuff because when you're a child you do things like your parents do and the fact that names are not important that dates are not important that places are not important just some kind of an inner subjective feeling is something that resonates in my stories because most of my characters they don't have any names and most of the stories have the same kind of logic of my mom and the thing about it if I have to compare it's like let's say when my father would tell his story or history it would be a little bit bit like a mathematical equation or a graph. There was something that was kind of consistent and that started with his childhood and ended with his death. With my mother, it was more like a pearl necklace. She would tell a story which would be a pearl and then another one, another one, another one. And the idea was that this chain accumulated to something that was kind of gestalt-like. It was more than each of those separate pearls. You were able to extrapolate something out of it. And I feel that as a child, I felt that I was getting so much from her stories and that compared to other stories that I heard around me, that I wanted to hear these kind of stories. And I guess when I grew up, I wanted to tell these kind of stories. And in a sense, I think that everything I learned from my mother was some kind of an education to resist the identity culture. Because my mother, for example, she loved Wagner. And Wagner was an anti-Semite and loved by the Nazis. And my mother said, you know, if this guy would come for coffee, I would poison him. But listening to his music, I just like his music and I don't care. And my parents read Celine and Ezra Pound and they made this separation between those two things. And in it, again, both of them resisted to be seen as something that is kind of a, a clear, like a Holocaust survivor, victims. I remember that I once went with my mother to a place where you had to wait in line. And a young man asked that they let mother in first. And he said, let her go first. She's a Holocaust survivor. And my mother smiled and looked at him and she said to him, the fact that I'm a Holocaust survivor, what does it mean? I think that what it means is that if this queue would last for four or five hours, that you will probably drop dead long before me. I already proved that I can prevail. So why would you want me to go first? So there was something about these ideas. I think that we live today in an age where victimhood is almost... A value. I think when you talk to people, I think that they almost as out of negotiation, they want to show their weaknesses, their hurt, their pain, their limitation, as if this would allow them something. It's really like, I think if I have to find some kind of a metaphor for the world today, it's for me, 
is I hope that you that this will not remind you of something that you went through. I did, but it's a little bit like you go to an ER in a hospital, let's say at midnight or 1 a.m. And there are a bunch of people waiting and all of them are waiting way too long. They're bleeding, they're hurting, they're afraid, they're tired. They want somebody to see them. And then at a certain point, the doctor comes and he asks for this page. And then everybody jumps and shouts, my wife is unconscious. Don't you see? I'm bleeding from my eyes. They're doing all those kind of things. And in the end, the doctor accepts one of them. So I think that this is the situation we're living in, you know, in the 2022. And what I want to say is that when I see this situation, I'm totally empathic to it because the man that his wife is unconscious or the woman that bleeds from her eyes, they should get better treatment. You know, they should be treated. But the idea is if you'd ask me if I would want to a hospital managed this way, I wouldn't want to go there because except for the fact that there is a feeling of anarchy and uncertainty and a system that is not decided and it's not professionally decided who will be treated first. I think more than that, it's a system in which the person who gets treated is not necessarily the one who's most ill, but the one who shouts the loudest. The one who's unconscious will not be represented. So in the end, it all becomes like this kind of room where hundreds of people are rushing to you and say, I'm first, I'm first, can leverage his power the most. And you listen to the one who's loudest or pushiest or... And there is something about this that also, let's say, ethically or rationally, it's totally wrong. Because what happened is that we would want to live in a system where justice is being served, where we're doing the things that is best. I'm going. It's people who say, what's right is to do what's good for me. So there is something kind of problematic in this kind of argumentation. We would want justice to be something that we would join. I would want to argue for gay rights, even if I'm straight. I would want to argue for women's rights, even if I'm a man, you know. It shouldn't be treated as a gang war. The moment that it's like it's a gang war, it feels much more like white superiority. It's kind of this idea, we are a group and we want what Jews will not replace us, as they said, you know. So I'm saying that through my mother, I kind of realized that this idea of reducing yourself to something, reducing yourself to a Holocaust survivor, making yourself a pebble in a big mosaic, kind of giving up your individuality, it's not a good thing. It's not worth what you're going to get. So they let her go to the doctor first, but the price that she'll have have to pay will be that she could stop creating her identity and occupy the identity given to her. I've read, I think maybe a couple of days ago, some kind of research about post-trauma in the First World War. I think it was the first research of post-trauma. And they discovered that from all the positions in the army, the people who were most post-traumatic were the people who would be put in balloons and sent up as scouts. And the thing about it is that those people, they were up in the air, they could say when there was an air attack or when so Soldiers would come. The job was really, really important. But the thing was that when people started shooting at them, either from the ground or from the air, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't even dodge. They were in a balloon in the air. You know, they were sitting ducks. You know, they're not sitting ducks. They were levitating ducks, but they couldn't move and discovered that those people were the most traumatized one. Now, I think that people who were in warfare would always be traumatized. But the idea that you can't do anything, you're powerless against the reality. There is something so horrible about it. And there is something about art that helps you kind of open a trapdoor into a realm of imagination or something that you create. So the fact that you can imagine something, it's already an active action. It's really like my father told me when he was a child during the Holocaust that he would always try to imagine all kinds of alternative universes. Like, you know, an alternative universe where there were still Nazis, but instead of hunting down Jews, they were hunting down red-headed girls 
with freckles. And then my father would imagine that he would hide the red-headed girls with freckles from the Nazis, you know, or that they seek Jews, but whenever they find them, they give them chocolates. I don't know. I asked my father, the child, what was the point in imagining this word? And he said, everything that you can imagine can potentially exist. So whenever I was hiding in a hole in the ground and whenever I could imagine something new, I would make the space in which I live bigger and bigger and wider and make it to this kind of infinite plane by kind of unfolding my imagination. And I think that always kind of good to remind ourselves that we have an option, we're active, we can act. The thing about therapy is that basically I began writing after my best friend killed himself. And before he killed himself, he was kind of seen by an army psychiatrist who said that he was allowed to carry his firearm. And I tried to argue that he had the fixation that he wants to shoot himself and that they should take his rifle. And the psychiatrist said, you know, I went to university for seven years and you're an 18-year-old asshole with a big mouth, so shut up or I'm going to put you on trial or something. And my, I think my reflex after my friend killed himself was that I should not interact with psychologists and psychiatrists. Now, it's not a rational decision. It's a little bit like somebody who was bitten by a scorpion or something, you know. I'm almost psychology-phobic, but not really. It's just that there is something about this kind of idea of somebody who can understand your mind that I both yearn for it, but also kind of doubt it. And this idea that you pay somebody and he's interested in you, it's kind of almost like mental prostitution or something. You know, it's really like, it sounds like you go there only if you don't have smart friends to talk to, you know. But at the same time, I realize how much help it brings people. And actually, I have friends who are psychologists. So it's not as if I'm against this vocation. It's just that maybe because of my biography, I had to go for a plan B. And I wrote my first story, Pipes, about two or three weeks after my friend died. So I guess that this idea that I passed a trauma and I can't go to a psychologist or psychotherapist kind of made me look for a plan B. And kind of made me a writer. I think that one of the most powerful sentences I've read, and I probably misquoted, was in Faulkner's Wild Palms, where the protagonist says that between nothing and grief, I would always choose grief. And again, there is some kind of hubris about it, because nobody said that life is a buffet and you can choose what you want, you know. But I think that there is something about in this statement saying between void and suffering, I'd rather be suffering so I'll feel human, I'll feel my emotion, I'll feel my life and not feel anything, then uh, this is something that I can totally identify with. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.